Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome. I'm Les Bubka and you're listening to Accidental Podcast or something like that. Today, I have a pleasure talking to Gary Chamberlain. Kyokushin fighter, engine uh, instructor, uh, fireman, and author. I love Gary's approach to uh, karate, teaching karate, no nonsense, uh, without fluff, straight to the point, uh, focused on results. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, Gary's stories are mesmerizing. Um, uh, we cover lots of stuff, including mental health, uh, Kyokushin beginnings, uh, moving to ancient karate. Uh, Gary was talking about uh, his experience and how it is to be a fire person, uh, which I kind of um, really respect. Uh, I have a limited experience of fireman training. I never done anything uh, dangerous. But just that training made me realize how difficult that job is. I hope you're gonna enjoy this one. Uh, if you would like to support uh, uh, fire services, Gary's got the uh, book uh, that all the funds going into uh, fire service. Um, so you can send a text, and then he's gonna send you a book. Uh, email gonna be in the description. Uh, I hope you're gonna enjoy it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I love listening to Gary. And uh, without further ado, let's go and listen. So, hello, Gary. Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Thank you for donating your time. Uh, I really appreciate um, you talking to me because I'm kind of a fan of your approach. I love your straightforwardness and uh, not making things bullshit. You say as it is, you're always honest, which I think is lacking in, in today's uh, society. 
And we kind of met on the, your seminar with um, Kanchonino Mia, which unfortunately he didn't manage to attend. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. through through my friend uh, Pavel Sempek, who is your student or yeah. was, still is, I would say. Uh, and I really liked uh, what you're doing. Then we connected through the social media. I'm kind of following you. I like what you're putting out. I like your approach to training, and I love um, your fireman stories. Um, but we, so we could, I'm going to try to cover all of that. Obviously, I am a, a karateka, so that that part is interesting for me. But your uh, kind of uh, stories about fire fire service are also um, uh, lovely uh, to hear for me. And um, could we start with a bit of a background on your martial art career and, and what you do and how are you? Yeah, I, I started at 15. Um, I had quite a difficult time as a youngster. Uh, my father was ex-military and like a lot of ex-military, um, I think he'd got some issues left over from his service. You know, he served in a war zone. He was in Korea. Um, and he was a man of contrast. You know, sometimes he was very, very helpful. Sometimes he was really, really harsh. Um, if he lost his temper, things got painful quite quickly. So even as a child, I learned to duck and run at a very early age. You know? um, and it's quite hard for a child. You know, if you don't know how your father's going to be, sometimes he's going to be OK. Sometimes he's not. You're never quite sure what's going on. So there's like a low level sort of fear that eats away at you all the time. You know, you always got that when your father comes home from work, got that sick sort of feeling in your stomach. Um, it's quite difficult to explain to somebody who's not been in that situation. But anyway, the long shot of it was at 15, I just thought, you know what? I don't like feeling weak. I don't like feeling scared. I've got to do something about it. The catalyst, I had trouble with a gang of lads at school, but, you know, I just I just felt I needed to do something. I sensed a weakness and I wanted to correct it. So choices at the time, this was in 1971, choices at the time were very limited. There was the Shotokan Club in Leicester, very, very good, Japanese instructor, but they seemed to do kata a lot. Uh, there was a boxing club nearby, that far, far nearer than the karate dojo. But I went there and I watched them spar and I thought, you know what, I can't fancy that. I just didn't have the confidence to do it. And I went to a judo club because my great uncle was a judo black belt, one of the first judo black belts in Leicester. Um, and I went there and I, I, at the time I was 15 years old. I was almost six foot tall. I weighed eight and a half stone. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is in kilos, but I was very, very skinny. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the judo and I thought, I've not really got the build for this, you know. So almost as a last resort, we went along to the Leicester Karate Kyokushinkai on a, it was a, a very cold November night. And when we slid back the door to the dojo to walk in, the dojo was in an old garage, an old TA centre garage. Mm -hmm. When we slid back the door, the heat hit us on the sweat where everybody was working. Um, and I, I sat and watched. I was just open-mouthed, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And I saw these people throwing high kicks, kicking the bag, kicking each other in the head. And I thought, I could do that. I've got long legs, you know, it just hit me. But, you know, I could do that, you know. And I just 
believed right from that moment that I could be good at this. And as a child, you know, if you've been told by your parents over and over, your shoes aren't clean enough and your bedroom's not tidy enough and you're told drip fed all the time that what you're doing is not quite up to standard. Mm-hmm. You want yeah. to find something that you can be good at, you know, so not, not so that you can, you know, stick two fingers up to your, your dad or anything like that and say, look, you know, I can do this, you know, but I just felt a need. And I think a lot of kids have the same. They want to be good at something. Yeah. Instead of like at school these days, you know, they're told they're good at everything, you know, no matter what happens on the sports day, oh, you tried, have a medal anyway. You know, I had a need to want to try to be really good at something. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, you know, yeah, that's why I've started. Um, so I trained in Kyokushin. Uh, I trained very hard. I had to cycle 15 miles to get to the club anyway, because my father wasn't interested. He wouldn't, wouldn't help at all. So I used to come home from school, grab a sandwich, get on my bike, cycle to the dojo. And they had this lovely warm-up to go around the drill yard of the TA centre. It was about a quarter mile. And you had to run around 20 times as a warm-up. <laughs> and I said, sort of well, look, I've just cycled 15 miles. To get, no, get your shoes on, get running. You know, we had to run around, you know, this mm-hmm. drill yard to warm up. One of the brown belts sat there ticking off every lap as you went round. And then the training was from seven o'clock till 10 o'clock, three hours, everybody together, right? You know, we didn't have any black belts then. There was only the two instructors who were black belts, but everybody else up to brown, down to beginner. They all trained in the same class. And there were usually about 30 of us there. Um, so I used to train from seven till 10, and then I had to cycle home again. I mean, like, when I talk to my kids now, 15 years old, you know, about what I used to do, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, you don't let us cycle off at nearly midnight. Well, no, but I mean, times were different then, you know, that maybe we weren't so risk aware then, you know, we just got on with stuff. Um, anyway, I'd promise my mother, because we weren't very well off, my mother was going to buy me a gi and pay for my membership fees. But she was quite shrewd, really, because she said to me, look, I'll, I'll pay this out but you've got to promise me, I'm a solemn promise that you're going to train for a year. Because if you're going to mess around, if you're just going to do it for a week and say, oh, mum, it's too hard or something like that, it's a waste of my money, I'm not going to do that. So you've got to promise me that you do it for a year. So I promised her and I did it. It was Tuesdays and Thursdays and the odd Sunday morning, not every Sunday morning, you know, depending on who was available to teach. Um, but every Tuesday and Thursday for 12 months, I never missed a session. I was quite quite pleased with that at the time. I was still pleased with it now, to be honest. It was it was very hard all through that winter, you know, like snow, rain, made no difference at all. I still had to cycle up to the club, train, cycle back again. It was, it was probably one of the hardest things I've done, really. Mm-hmm. But, uh, of course, after a year, after 12 months, I, I got it. I got the book. You know, there was no way I was going to give up then. You know, I, I could have stopped. My mother wouldn't have minded if I did the year as promised, but I was enjoying it. So uh, I carried on. There we are. That was the start. That's a long, <laughs> a long intro. But, uh, that was the start. Um, what I liked about Kyokushin straight away was it was for scrapping. It was for fighting. Um, we did the Keon, we did the basics, we did the Kata, like every other karate club does. But the fighting, what we used to call dojo fighting, 
was rough. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying it was rough that people were vicious or malicious or anything like that. But if they put a kick in, you had to block. If you didn't block, you got bloody caught. You know. And at the time, we didn't have shin pads or anything like that. Nobody wore pads. You know. I mean, we. I can remember going to the local sports shop and buying a cricket box. Mm. You know. You know what I mean? Like a groin protector, which yeah. at the time they didn't have the banana-shaped things or anything scientific. Just stuffed a box down the front of your underpants just in case. Um, but virtually everything was allowed. You know, if somebody threw a slow kick, they grabbed it, they took you down. I mean, they, did, they didn't go into groundwork or anything like that. I mean, once it went to ground, obviously you stopped. Stood up. It was a stand-up system. But um, there was a lot more throwing and takedowns. So, I mean, like, you, you couldn't throw a sloppy kick. I mean, you you had to... Get it right, otherwise you you know you ended up on the floor. I mean, I've been on the floor more often than the cleaners mop. You know, it, you know, as a kid, you know, like I wasn't, I was quite leggy. I wasn't well balanced or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, you know, you got took down. I mean, we didn't have any juniors at the time. I was fifteen. I was one of the youngest there. Um, but I loved it, absolutely loved it. I and mean, I can still remember the feeling of, of, you know. If you caught one of the high grades when you were sparring, you know, like I say, I had long legs, you know. I can remember catching one of the brown belts with a roundhouse kick to the head. And afterwards, I got, I was on the wrong end of it. You know, he didn't like a, I think it was about a yellow belt at the time. He didn't like somebody catching him, you know, but I, I just loved it. I, you know, I was just buzzing, you know, that I was able to do this to an experienced fighter. Um, so, yeah, you know, I got the bug fairly early on, you know, and, uh, Stayed with me for what nearly fifty years, you know. Mm. There we go. Sorry, I'm, I'm rabbiting. You carry on. No, that's that's great. Um, I, the first thing which can come to my mind is that uh, that that cycling must have toughened you up a lot. You must have have uh, in a way advantage of the other people because you went through that extra training. Well, so, cycling is very hard. I mean, like where we lived, we lived in a village, so. The buses only came about twice a day. So if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to cycle. Mm. So right from an early age with my mother, you know, we, we cycled. If we needed to go into the local town, we cycled in. I mean, everybody did, you know, because at the time, I mean, uh, I was born in 1956. And at the time in the village, not, not everybody had cars. Lots of people had combinations, motorbike and sidecar. Mm. You know, not many people had cars. So because the buses weren't regular, if you wanted to go anywhere, you cycle. And by the time I was about 14, I was racing bikes. You know, I, I had a good build. I mean, people think for cycling, you have to be very powerfully built like Chris Hoy or something like that. But that's only one side of it. What, what makes a real difference in cycling is your cross-sectional area. Mm -hmm. So if you're slim, you don't have the, the, the wind resistance. So if you're very slimly built on a bike, if you, as long as you've got powerful legs, you can you can get good speed. Because if you've got a big frame, yeah. that acts like a, a barrier, you know. So I used I used to do a lot of ten mile time trials. We used to do one every Tuesday night with a club called the Welland Valley Wheelers, um, and it used to go from Market Harbour to Kibworth, turn around, and then go back. And I always like fixed wheel bikes the fixed wheel bikes are very good for fitness you know you've got one gear so you have to choose the gear very carefully depending on what you're doing but 
where I lived, it was not not huge hills, but there was lots of like rolling hills. So keeping the pedal cadence going, mm-hmm. it's good strong, you know, for your heart and lungs. So yeah, I was I was pretty fit. I was very skinny, but I was still quite strong in the legs. My arms not very strong at all. But um, when I started training, I mean, like we used to start off like a session as a warm up, like everybody would count ten for squats. So you do like three hundred squats as a warm up. Mm-hmm. before the session started and you'd hear people moaning and whining and you know, uh, you know you know you could see everybody getting you know a bit discomfortable but because of all the cycling yeah i mean i i, I didn't I really have an issue with that you know it seemed okay mm, so yeah um so you said that uh, you've been kind of i can, i think i can say a bit anxious because of your dad uh, i yeah. always ask this question to the uh, to the my um guests do you think that karate helped you with your mental health, uh, the resilience and toughening up? What's your view on that? Yeah, yeah, un- undoubtedly. I mean, I think there's a few issues there, really. I mean, I, my, my father didn't want to know. My father had been, like I said earlier, he fought in Korea. Um, he didn't like Oriental people. I mean, he wasn't an out-and-out racist, but because of things he'd seen mm. in Korea, he'd seen a lot of cruelty, the way people were treated, uh, not just combatants but the civilian population he's seen he's seen some horrible things so when i told him i was going to learn an oriental martial art he just he just it just snorted you know like because he'd been a royal marine when i'd had some trouble with this gang although although he was hard on me himself he was violent himself he still didn't like the thought of anybody else being violent mm-hmm. so when i told him i was having trouble with a, a few lads at school he was showing me like military on armed combat and it was like the chin jabs and you know how to break necks and stuff like that stuff I could not have used at school otherwise I would have been in Borstal you know uh, you can't go to school and kill people just because they say say something horrible you know it yeah. but his idea of unarmed combat was to just destroy the opponent and move on you know any idea of sport or anything like that was just totally foreign to him you know to him, if you can have a fight with somebody, you want to just destroy them as quickly as possible. You know, he, he couldn't understand the idea of points, referees, anything like that. So I wanted to do something. Uh, again, I've, I touched on this earlier. I wanted to do something that was mine. So I could say to him, look, I'm good at this. You know, I enjoy doing it. I'm good. And I can remember quite distinctly when I got picked for the England team the first time. Um, I rang him up, so I've been picked for England. I'm going to fight at Wembley Arena, 10,000 people. Do you want me to get your tickets? And he went, nah, not really. You know, it's not really my thing. And it's a long way to come because I can't see you doing very well. So even then, even when I was I was good, um, I was never brilliant, but I, I was I was competent. I did. I did OK. Um, but even then, you know, it didn't didn't really register with him that I'd, I'd found something I could really achieve at. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a very troubled relationship with my father. I mean, I could touch on that later, but the longer I've been in karate, the more I've realised that a lot of people start for very similar reasons. I mean, even yeah. Dolph Lundgren, um, he he did a talk on TED, one of these TED talks, and I watched it and I thought, that's, that's just uncanny. It's so sim- similar. His father was ex-military, very hard on him. Um, 
apparently he had an escape because he went to live with his grandparents. But I mean, I didn't have that option, so I had to just put up with it. But uh, it, it's amazing how many how many people have had a hard upbringing and their sense of weakness, and they want to do something about it. Yeah. So you know, the late once all the dots connected, the later part of my karate sort of career, if you like, I was doing a lot trying to help youngsters get over exactly the same problem. But uh, yeah, so mentally, I mean, you know, I've always been quite determined. Uh, I mean, all the cycling, the training, the cycling, I knew right from an early age, and I don't mean to sound big Eddie, but I, I knew straight away that I got something inside quite determined. You know, I was, I, there's no way I would have not done the year. Mm-hmm. Um, from when I started training, I started like obviously as a beginner. At the, I mean, at the time we still lined up in rows. You know, I mean a lot of clubs still do, but at the time we were very traditional. We lined up in rows, so I was right at the back here. I was the, the new member, right at the back. <laughs> and from the day I started, I passed everybody. <clears throat> Nobody else in the club took black belt until I did. I was the first one. So I I used to line up to train, and. I'm sure a lot of people I trained with thought I was a cocky young kid and I was getting above myself, but I was just very, very focused. I just wanted to improve. So I always used to say to my students, you know, every time you train, you're competing, you're competing with a man on your right or the woman, whoever, whoever it is. I'm not being sexist, but the person on your right. So if you're a yellow belt and you've got a green belt on your right hand side in the line, everything you do, try and be faster than them, sharper than them. If you're doing a combination, do it better than them. You know what I mean? There's no mm-hmm. no sort of like coasting along, you know, sort of thing. Well, okay, nobody expects me to be them. I can just go at my speed. You've got to try and beat the person on your rights every time you train, you know. And uh, I think with that and the consistency as well, because we used to train really hard. I mean, stupid hard. Um I don't blame the instructors at the time. I had one instructor called Ted Smith, and he he was just, you know, I mean, he was a great bloke. Don't get me wrong, I really respected him. But if he heard, for example, that down the show to come, they were doing 500 kicks as a warm-up, we'd do 1,000. You know what I mean? He wanted to, you know, we'd, we'd get the stories coming back about the training in Japan. Or they do half an hour of bunny hop. So yeah, we'll do that. You know, like, do you know what I mean? He he wanted to sort of like top everything else that he heard people were doing. So they go in for a session, you know, and maybe you could train on a Tuesday night, and it was a really really tough class. On the Thursday night, some of the people wouldn't be there. You mm-hmm. know, they come back the next Tuesday, do another really tough class. Maybe they'd miss the Thursday again, and maybe the Tuesday as well. So you get some people who only train like once a fortnight, twice a fortnight. Whereas with me, because I was there mm. every time, consistency pays off. And I mean, I, I really, you know, I, I didn't understand the, the value of it initially, but obviously I do now that consistency beats intensity. You know, oh, don't yeah. and have to have a fortnight off because you've injured yourself. You know, like be consistent, keep turning up, even if you don't feel like it. And I, Trust me, there, there were nights when, like, it was blowing a gale, rain was sheeting down, you know. I looked outside, I thought, oh, God, I, re- I really don't want to do this. But that's where your mental toughness comes in. You know, you just got to get yourself down there. Um, 
I mean, I always used to say to my students, there's three types of sessions you've got. When you feel great, that's a spirit session. You work hard, you get a sweat, plenty of ki, really enjoy it. You go out later on after you trained, you feel great, you know, really on top of it. Then maybe you've had a shit day at work. But, sorry, don't mean to sweat. That's okay, that's okay. <laughs> maybe you've had a bad day at work, you know, you go in. You've still got to train. Turn up, though, but turn the power down. Just make sure the skills are absolutely spot on, you know, like make sure everything's good, accurate, so you're still getting something out of it, you know. And then there will be days where you've had a round with a wife, you know, you don't feel good, you've had a crap day at work, you really, really don't want to turn up. But those are the most important because you make yourself go and that's where your mental toughness comes in, you know. That's, that's where it builds up, you know. I, I understand recreational trainers. And I understand people that have got like a bit of a, a samurai fixation and all the rest of it. You know, and they want to put pictures of Masashi up in the house. And I understand all that, but it was never for me. For me, it was just practical. I just wanted to be good at something. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a scrapper. I wanted to be a fighter. Um, I, you know, I'm not, I, I was never a tough guy, but. When I left home, I left home at 17 because I actually had a fight with my father and I had to leave, you know, I won. Um, But I actually had a a fight with him and I had to leave home. And I moved into Leicester and I got a job in a factory, but part of it was going to college as well. So I had a good group of mates in the factory, the college, you know, and we used to go out on a Friday night. At the time, Leicester was of quite a violent city, so we used to be scrapping every Friday night. And I always did okay. And I never went to hospital, apart from a few stitches now and again. Never got arrested. So I think I got it almost pretty much right, if, if that makes sense. Because I didn't, I didn't get locked away for, for going over the top. I mean, some of my friends, if they had a fight, they couldn't stop. If they got somebody on the ground, they were kicking them and... You know, they they just just went crazy. They just went mad. They didn't end up getting arrested, you know. Mm-hmm. Some of them couldn't fight. They didn't end up going to hospital, you know. But the Kyokushin at the time, I thought, you know, I mean, you always get these these people now, you know, these reality-based and all the rest of it. Oh, karate doesn't work in the street. That's a load of bollocks. It worked for me. I can't say for everybody. But the training we did in Kyokushin at the time was rough, you know. It turned you into a scrapper. Um, not necessarily the best skill set, you know. Uh, when I represented the BKK in all styles competitions, you know, you'd see some of them, the Shotokan, the Shukakai. You looked at them warming up and you thought, oh, they look so good. They look really technical, you know. Um, and in that type of competition at the time, points fighting, they were they were the top, you know, like Kyokushin, we just looked rough. You know, like we're little kids not like kids at school doing PE where they've took the kids out of the lost property bin. You know what I mean? You know, we, we didn't look slick like they did. This is just my opinion. Other people might have thought we looked great, but I could see straight away that they trained to be competitors where we trained to be fighters. And there's a there's a big difference there, you know, that I think people need to to understand the difference, you know. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm rubbed. Uh, so you've been uh, for quite a long time in Kyokushin. You've been on the competition stage doing uh, quite well, as you said. So you yeah. must have been fighting 
some few legends now, like Howard Collins and, yeah, and yeah. others. How was that? Did you um did they've been really that good at the time, or is that the yeah, legend grown? Probably, probably the two best people I I fought. I mean, one in competition and one in the dojo. Um, very famous at the time was Howard Collins, who's now one of the top Shians in um, in uh, Ikeo Two Shinkyokushin. Mm. Um, still teaching in Sweden. Got a great respect for the man. He was he was a, a gentleman as well as a a really tough tough guy. Uh, one of the first to do 100 kumite all on the same day in Japan. You know, he's, he, I mean, his legend is is well known among karate people, certainly among the full contact fighters. Um, I was picked for the England team 1978. As I mentioned earlier, I offered to get my parents' tickets. Um, obviously, karate is different to boxing or MMA or anything like that because you don't know who you're going to fight. Um, they literally used to do the draw on the day of the tournament, or maybe you know, maybe the night before, but certainly the fighters didn't get to see it. So, like today, um, you know, if you if you're in MMA or something like that, and you know you're going to fight X fighter, you can look at YouTube videos, you can look at the way they they are and all the rest of it. We didn't have that. We just had to get ourselves as fit as we could, get ourselves right, turn up on the day not knowing who you're going to fight, and Wembley 1978, this was the first European Championship. So, like, even if I knew some of the, the British fighters, I certainly didn't know the Europeans. Mm. So, yeah, you just got to get yourself right and believe in what you're doing. Um, when I turned up on the day, I looked at the draw sheet. Bloody hell, Howard Collins' first fight. I thought, how, how unlucky is that, you know? One of my first thoughts was I'm glad I didn't bother getting my father tickets because they would have seen me get wiped out in the first round and then said, <laughs> I told you, no point coming. But um, I started off, I had the same sick feeling in my stomach that I had as a child, you know, like mm -hmm. my dad's come home, he's in a bad mood, sooner or later things are going to break out into violence, you know. And I had the same sort of feeling getting up to the max, you know, and I've not really felt that during training because sparring during training, although it was rough, here I was being watched by 12,000 people. Yeah. And I was more afraid of looking a chump, looking a fool, than I was of any getting hurt. I wasn't afraid of being kicked in the head. That had happened loads of times before and I didn't die. I wasn't afraid of being hurt. My father had hurt me right. I mean, I think I was four years old the first time he knocked me out, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was used to being hit. So I wasn't really afraid of being hit. I was afraid of looking stupid, you know, and, and I represented the dojo. So... You know, a lot of people you know, they gave up their Saturday, they got on the bus, they came down. They would have probably gone to watch the tournament anyway, but on the way down, they're all, come on, Carrie, you can do really well. And I realised, you know, crikey, they're all, you know, they all believe in me, which is great. Great to have support there. But it puts more pressure on you because you think, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to let all these people down, not just myself, you know. So I got up to fight Howard Collins and... To start off with, I can remember just feeling dread, you know, like, oh, this is gonna, not going to go well. And then all of a sudden, something clicked in my head, and I thought, you know what, you're here now, fuck it, just keep... Sorry, I'll keep swearing. That's fine, that's fine. That's, that's fine. the fireman in me. Um, I just thought, fuck it, I'm here now, I'll just give it my best shot. And when I've watched the video back afterwards, I did all right, I did okay. 
until a few seconds before the end. But like I say, I was quite leggy, quite quite long legged, which was great for kicking. But I didn't have a really good balance and stability. So he was really good at sweeps. So he he got it dead right. I mean, you know, full respect to Howard Collins. He won the tournament on sweeps, basically. I mean, like he could hit hard, he could kick, he could do everything. But his real his real winning move was to sweep people over. He did it to me. And it's Jeff Wybrow, you know, he did some very good people during the day. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when I came off, although I lost, I was gutted I'd lost. I mean, I could have been the first bloke because 1976, Howard Collins won the British, which was virtually a European Championships anyway, because all the European fighters came over to compete. He won in 1976, he won in 1977, and in 78, I thought I could be the first one to beat him you know mm-hmm. and I was still I still wasn't very heavy then I was I think I was about 82 kilos in 1978 Howard Collins was about 90 so I could have won on the scales because in the first round I think you did two minutes and for the first round to, to sort the weight from the chap I think the extension was only one minute yeah so in other words if I've got to hung on for another one minute and 10 seconds or whatever it was so we, we would have gone to the scales I would have won. Not that I want to win on the scales, but I mean, if you're not knocking somebody over because he's just too good, you know, that's that's the second sort of like option, isn't it? You know, okay, I'm lighter than him. If I can just keep fighting, keep my focus, keep fighting, maybe I can win on the scales. But anyway, he was too good and fair play to him. You know, I've got, I've got no problem with him beating me at all because I, I respect the man. It's not like he got lucky. He was, he was very, very good. Um, the other fighter who is a great mentor to me, um, to this day, really, is probably one of the most influential people I've had in my craft. He was a man called Brian Fitkin. Mm-hmm. And likewise, Brian Fitkin still teaches in Stockholm to this day. Um, extremely strong. Um, he used to come over to the summer camps every year. And everybody just looked at what he was doing and just, oh, you know, he was, he was just brilliant. He was just head and shoulders above everybody else, you know. We had some very, very good people in the BKK, Jeff Wybrow, Bernard Creek, and they were all legends. They were all really, really good. But Brian Fitkin was just the next level. He was right up there. Um, in 1978, uh, after the European tournament, I just thought, I just need that, need something extra. So I was already in the fire service by then. So in the fire service, leaves allocated in blocks. You can't necessarily choose when you get your holiday because mm-hmm. obviously they've got to maintain the right number of people on, on station all the time. So I had some leave coming up in December, which probably wasn't the best time to go to Stockholm because it was about minus 30 or 40 degrees. But anyway, I, I wrote to Brian Fitkin. This is long before email and text and all the rest of it so I wrote to Brian Fitkin and said look you know I'd really be interested in coming over to train it, it was couldn't have been more helpful it was really really helpful um then when I got there it was much harder than I thought it was going to be I thought we trained hard at Leicester but Stockholm <laughs> right on there it was one of the best probably one of the best places I've ever trained at in 50 years of karate it was really really good um in Leicester, I was one of the tallest. In Stockholm, I was one of the shorter ones. Yeah. Six foot three, six foot five. 
but they were all moving quick as well. You know, it's not like they were big, heavy guys that were stumbling around. They were all really, really sharp. Um, so that was a great incentive to me. I mean, like, you know, I just thought I've got to really got to raise my level here. I'm kidding myself. I'm thinking I'm good, but I'm not. I'm not where I should be. You know, I want to be. So that was a great incentive to do do more. Um, I sparred with Brian Fitkin and just realised I was. I mean, he was playing with me like I was at the time. I was a black belt already. Obviously, I was think I was second down. I think, you know, like I'd play with some of the the beginners. Mm-hmm. At Leicester, he was the second. You know, I never got near him. Never, never, never caught him with anything. Like for an hour, I was on the back. You know, sweet bang, up you get, sweet up you get. You know, I mean, completely different class. So yeah, I mean, he he was a great mentor. He was the first one. Although I was determined, um, right from an early age, I didn't really have that self belief. Mm-hmm. You know, and. I'm not trying to be all pop psychology here, but I think that's a legacy from childhood as well. If you're constantly told that you're not quite good enough, you know, you still believe that for a while. It takes a while to get over that. Um, so, yeah, you know, Brian Fitkin was the first one to really say to me, look, technically, you're very good. Fitness-wise, you're very good. Work on that. Mm. And he, he said, if you can work on your confidence that's that's the missing link at the moment you know everybody thinks if they train hard the mind comes along as well but you've got to do it the other way around mm. you've got to train that first and then the body comes with it that makes sense obviously the two go up together mm-hmm. but if you're going to give preference to one looking back i should give more preference to the mental side and then the physical side that helps the physical side come higher mm. you know but you can be as fit as you like it can be as skillful as you like, but if you don't really believe in yourself, it's not going to work for you. Yeah, You're still going to get up there expecting to lose, you know. Mm. Well, that's, so, that's, that's my biggest problem. I always, when I competed, I, I've, I've been very happy with the first fight. If I won the first yeah. fight, now my my goal was fulfilled, and then the, that um, uh, doubt was creeping in, and I second fight was the worst fight for me always. Yeah, always done yeah. something wrong because I couldn't believe that actually I can step on the podium and win. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, what made the difference with me was when you use the word predator, predators got really sinister connotations now. People talk about predators with attacking women and all that stuff. So I don't mean it in that sense. What I mean is in a karate sense, being a predator. And what I mean by that is when you when I first started to fight, there was a stage as you go through. The first thing I was thinking, if he does this, I'll do that. Mm. You know what I mean? Then the next stage is, if my opponent does this, um, I'll do that. And then if he does this, I'll do that. You know, you sort of half of your thinking is, maybe they'll do something, then I can counterattack. Or maybe I'll do something, then they'll counter, but then I've, I've got a, a plan for that as well. I was overthinking it. The final stage for me was where I didn't give a toss what they did. I really didn't care. It was like driving your car. You know, when you drive your car, maybe you're looking for a street in an unfamiliar town. So you, your eyes are looking for the street sign. I know we've got sat-nav now, but imagine before sat-nav. Your body is just driving the car, isn't it? You're not thinking about pressing the clutch or changing the gear. That's just happening completely automatically mm-hmm. while your mind 
It's just looking for what you want to see, you know. And that's what I mean by predatory fighter. I didn't care what my opponents were going to do. I just focused completely on what I was going to do to them. Mm -hmm. And that was a real big change for me. And again, I wasn't brilliant. I was I was quite good. You know, I'm not I'm not being falsely modest. I was you know I was quite strong by the time I finished. I think when I when I won the British, the BKK magazine described me as strong and determined. I mean, I'll take that. I was quite pleased with that. That sounded all right. Compared to how I was as a child, you know, nobody would have described me as a 15-year-old as strong and determined. You know? mm. So to have that from the BKK, I was quite pleased with. Um, but that was the real turning point for me. You know, and again, this is after Brian Fitkin's influence. You know, I stopped worrying about what my opponents were doing. I'll deal with that. You know, I'd, I'd react to that. You know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I was well-schooled, well-drilled. So if they threw a kit, I'd deal with that almost subconsciously. I didn't have to think about it. All my mental thought was what I'm going to do to them, you know. And that's what I mean by a predatory fighter. You know, I, I just went after them. And uh, in knockdown, it makes sense to win as quickly as you can. Because if you got – when I won the British, I had five rounds of fighting. Mm -hmm. Now, as it happens, I had a buy in one round, and one bloke had to withdraw because he was injured. But I trained for five rounds of fighting. So that's five times six, potentially five times six minutes because you have two two-minute rounds and then a two-minute extension if no decision. So you have to get yourself fit thinking on one day I might have to do 30 hard rounds of fighting, you know. Mm -hmm. So the better option is to do all your training to try and knock people down as quickly as you can because then you only get one minute, one minute, one minute, one minute. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, the first fight I had in the British Open that I won was over in 10 seconds. You know, it was a, a Wushu guy, and he tried a, a fancy kick. When he put his leg down, I did an inside thigh kick, knocked him off balance, grabbed him because we could grab them, kneed him in the face, hip on. Mm. You, know? And the, you know, when somebody sees a knockout, the crowd goes, ah, like this. everybody went, what happened? You know, like, because the fight had just started, people were still eating their bloody sandwiches and all the rest of it. They were expecting, mm. you know, they're expecting a bit of moving around, dancing around before the before the things really got going. But I just used to go after people, try and win as quickly as I could. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, obviously, if somebody's really good, it doesn't work that well because they're, you know, they're on the same level. So you still end up having a battle. But that was my strategy, though. Try and win as quickly as possible because... And my next opponent might have fought for six hard minutes, whereas mm -hmm. I've only fought for like 15 seconds. So, like, he's picked up kicks to the leg, you know, he's tired, you know, that's that's helping me next round. You know, I'm fighting somebody who's already injured, so that's got to be good for me. So, that I mean, it took me a while to get there. I mean, like, my first couple of competitions, because I was quite light, uh, I was always a heavyweight, or light heavyweight, depending on the categories of a particular tournament. So I was fighting some big guys. So I thought if I can just last, if I can move around, keep fighting, I can win on the scales. Mm. But the trouble is you are getting caught, you are getting hit. So like I go and sit down for an hour, then I could hardly walk to the toilet, you know, because like my legs were all kicked to bits, you know. So that's not a good strategy at all. So I advise anybody, be a predator, you know, like train yourself. It's like bag work, you know. I talk to people who are getting ready for a tournament. 
and they're spending an hour on the bag. An hour. Mm. Why? You can't hit something hard for an hour. It's just not possible. You know, unless you're bloody Superman, you can't hit hard enough for an hour. If you imagine a fighter, they've got everybody's got a threshold of what you can accept contact-wise. Because mm-hmm. you're trying to breach somebody by breaking their body or breaking the spirit. You know, that's how you win a knockdown fight. So if they can take contact at that level, if you hit the bag for an hour, never hitting that level, it's not helping you. Okay, your stamina's improving, but it's not helping you to win because they can take those sort of blows, certainly for six minutes, without mm-hmm. knocking them down. You've got to train yourself so that you're hitting harder than that, harder than that. Harder than that all the time. So every time you hit them, it's really hurting them. So it's eating into their mind, you know, straight away. You know, Christ, you know, every time he kicks me, oh, my leg, you know, oh, you know, what's going on? You don't articulate that thought, but your body knows. Mm-hmm. Your yeah. body know, knows, knows how hard you're being hit. So you've got, to, you've got to work at that level where people, they can't accept the contact that you're giving them, you know? Yeah. There we go. I, I kind of hate those knees which you just described it. I had a, um, my friend went from our dojo to uh, Shigeru Doyama uh, style. So he, he become a world champion, I think, three or four times in it. And he used to be my sparring partner. And I'm yeah. only tiny. He's kind of your size, Norbert. And he always used to catch me with that knee. I hated it. That knee into the jaw. I hated it. I never could see it. Yeah, because it's yeah. so, from such a so close contact that you barely see it. You just feel it landing, and then you think, "Oh shit, I'm going down now." I'm, I'm very lucky. I've got long legs, but I've got quite a long femur, mm. so I I could stand. Now I can remember fighting a bloke called David Grease at a, um, a sparring, uh, like a squad selection. And David Grease was tall, and I can remember standing right up close to him. I hit him with a statsky. And then I brought my knee up and caught him with the knee. I mean, I wasn't going full contact because it was a sparring rather than competition. And he just couldn't believe it. But I was lucky because I, you know, I had long legs. I could be really close and still get my knee up, catch people. Um, I say lucky. I mean, like, I wasn't particularly strong in the arms. You know, I did some boxing training because I never really believed in my punches. Uh, I did some boxing training. You know, I had a good good boxer coaching me, and I, I absolutely hated it because I wasn't used to covering the head. Uh, and I, I used to put a head guard on, a gum shield, and stuff like that. But I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I just felt like he was going using my head like a speedball. But he, he showed me how to get in close for like a shovel hook for the body, um, and I managed to knock some good people down with that blow afterwards. So, like, you know, he, he really helped how to coordinate and get that shovel hook working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have to use the tools that you've got. I mean, I was lucky because I had long legs, like I say, long length of femur, so knee kicks work well for me. Um, arms, you know, I used to use arms really to – a lot of people, when they're fighting, um, they'll throw a kick to get them in distance for using arms. I was the other way around. Mm. If I was close in, I'd use arms and try and get the person to move back and then bring a kick over the top, you know? And you see a lot of people do either one way or the other. Clearly you've got to do both. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you've got to go from far away close. Sometimes you've got to go from close to far away. And 
when you watch, I mean, I was a referee for a long time. I was the chief referee for the BKK for a, a while. Um, the number of fighters who do that, they get some heavy contact, they go back to escape and the hands drop. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't capitalise on that, but I've, I've worked that one out quite quickly. That As soon as you get something moving backwards, some good contact to the body, they move back a little bit. Quite often they, they drop their arms, you know, they think they're out of danger. If you've got long legs, bang, then you need to whip it over the top, straight in. And that worked quite well for me. So you just got to use the tools that you're given, aren't you, really? You mm -hmm. can't change your body. I mean, you get stronger, but you can't change the length of your leg or the length of your arm. You've just got to find the best combination that works for you, really. Yeah, exactly. This is why, I mean, yeah. you know, where, where karate is concerned, you know, like I, I understand the Japanese system of drill where everybody moves forward and does the same thing. When I started coaching, I tried to coach people different. The heavyweights, I get them moving in a certain way. The middleweights in a certain way. The lightweights in a certain way. So even in Keon, the heavyweights, like, for example, might be moving forward in Sanshin. The middleweights might move in Zenkutsurachi. Mm -hmm. Alongside them, the lightweights, they might move in a different way. You know, So I try to get people moving in Keon in a way that represents how they're going to fight. The heavyweights maybe aren't going to be so mobile, so I'll have them in shorter stances, closer stances. The lightweights are going to be dancing around a little bit. I'll have them moving longer, long, longer patterns. And it, you know, it seemed to work quite well for us, really. Mm. You know, you, instead of training everybody all the same, you know. You have touched on, uh, on the coaching, which brings me to a change from Kyokushin to Enshin. Did you follow yeah. the Ashihara? And then Enshin, or you went straight to Jokoni uh, Nomiya? Because I love his quote, and I like you quoting, train smart, not hard. Everybody oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hard. Um, how did that change happen, and why did you went for Enshin? Oh, oh, the usual thing in karate, politics. There was a big <laughs> split in the BKK. Um, the BKK split with Japan, and maybe two-thirds stayed with Steve O'Neill. One third stayed with Japan. I decided Steve O'Neill was in this country. I'll stay with Steve O'Neill. Like I say, I wasn't interested in like samurai fantasies. You know, I wasn't reading books about, you know, the great warriors. You know what I mean? England, they've got their own martial tradition. If I wanted to read books about warriors, I'd read about the Charge of the Light Brigade mm -hmm. or the Huskulls. Uh, the Battle of Hastings, you know, like we have our own martial tradition. So I wasn't really so interested in the samurai. I just wanted to learn to fight, you know. So when the split came, go with Japan or stay with Steve O'Neill, I thought I'll stay with Steve O'Neill. And I have to say, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I have to say I was disappointed with some of the changes he made in the BKK. He changed things in the syllabus. I couldn't really support it again because I wanted to train my fighters to fight, not to be good at kata, not to be good at drills or look good. And the BKK changed, to be honest. I mean, everything changes, but, it, you know, some things change for the better and some things not. This is just my opinion. And again, I'm not a world leader or anything like that, but just my opinion. Some of the changes the BKK brought in, I couldn't support them. I'm not saying they're wrong, just saying for me personally, I couldn't support them. So I try to be honest, and I can't teach something if I don't believe in it. Mm. So after a while, you know, I just got married, but this is a complete coincidence, but my wife just turned around to me and said, you're not happy, are you? 
you're not happy teaching this style, this system. Why don't you leave? I thought, well, okay. Yeah, why not? I'll look for something else. Well, of course, I didn't want to be two-faced and sort of be teaching for them, refereeing for them and all the rest of it. Well, I knew I was looking for something else. I thought, best thing to do, I'll leave. I left the BKK. And for a time, I just run my own club. Mm-hmm. And we made some changes straight away. We just stayed with the practical stuff, the fancy stuff. We got rid of it straight away. You know, we didn't want to do it. I, I, I don't care if I can do a jumping, spinning, 720 degree. You know, I, I'm not interested at all. You know, if it's something that can't work practically, I'm not interested. So we did our own thing. And it was just pure coincidence. Me and Lisa, my wife, we were in a bookshop. And she hates it when I do this because I'll say to her, you go off and do what you do. I'll be in the bookshop. (laughs) And she goes off to about 15 different shops and comes back expecting me to be bored waiting for her. And I'm I'm reading a book. You know, I'm I'm a great reader. I read a book every week. One of my my teachers told me to do that when I was a kid and I've kept it going all my life. You know, I think that's the only way you learn by reading. You know, I don't watch YouTube to learn and stuff like that, although it has its place. But. I still read books. Anyway, by by coincidence, pure coincidence, I mean, I don't believe in fate or anything like that, but I walked into this bookshop, walked over to the martial arts section, and there was Joaquinina Nina's book, Tobacco Method. And I looked through it, and I, I just thought, every page I was looking at, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh, that, yeah, crikey, that's good. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. And I liked everything I saw. Absolutely everything. I thought this is brilliant. And I like the fact that they were still hooking because mm-hmm. they took the hooks out. Um, we always used to fight with hooking and grabbing. Dojo fighting when I first started. But because the British fighters and the European fighters were doing very well, they went to Japan and basically the Japanese were having a really hard time with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hans Lundgren was one. He nearly took some of his head off with that hook and knee kick. So next thing, boom, it's out of the tournament. You can't grab anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a political thing from the Japanese to try to protect their, you know, their status, really, their dominance. I mean, it all went wrong because the, the Russians are winning everything now. But yeah. at the time, the Japanese wanted to be above. So when, anyway, when I read Jokanina Mina's nearest book and I saw they were still grabbing, it was like going home. You know, it was like the training I started with, you know, like that practical aspect where somebody throws a kick, you can grab the gi, have them over, you know, and all that to a degree had been taken out of the BKK because, okay, yeah, we stood in, in the dojo sometimes, but if you've got three or four lads that are training for a tournament, you don't want them grabbing when they're sparring in the club because, you know, you've got to, you've got to get them to spar as they're going to fight on the on the day, you know, so everybody in the club was fighting under that rule system. So, again, you know, this, I can't remember if I had a computer then or not, but I remember writing a letter to, to Joe Kanina Mia um, asking if I could come over to train. I mean, I put a basic CV and, you know, like what grade I was. Or I was fourth down at the time. Um, and he said, yeah, you can come to Denver. You know, that's fine. You know, if you're interested in running a club. He sent me a handwritten letter back, which I was surprised with. You know, I've still got it. Um, anyway, he sent me a nice letter back saying, you know, come over. And uh, I went over, he picked me up at the airport in Denver, you know, 
So that was a nice personal touch, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, went back, showed me where I was sleeping. I stayed with the Uchideshi uh, for a while. Um, anyway, first session, he, he basically took his the week's schedule out and he said, I think you should do this one uh, and this session and this and this. And it got to about Tuesday. He went, yeah, just do them all. <laughs> so, so like three sessions a day. Every day, you know, because they had like a morning uh, bag work, bag work and weight training class. Then they had like a lunchtime skills class, nighttime senior class, you know. So it was great. I was training three times a day. <coughs> but I put my gi on. I only had a kyokushin gi. Um, put my fourth dan belt on, you know, went, you know, expecting to train. He went. I know you're a black belt, but not here. Right? Okay. So you got one of like they, they had like some uh, dojo spares. So give me a, a gi my size top to put on, and an orange belt. He said, "Here, your orange belt." Yeah, that's fine. That's okay. I don't I don't have such a big head. You know, if I can't wear my fourth done, I'm going. You know, you know what I mean. So, uh, so I put an orange belt on. Stood in the line, obviously the lowest part of the line. Um. The first class, uh, I didn't do the, I, I arrived back too late to do the night class. So the first one was morning training. Uh, we got up at six, go for a run, only, only a couple of miles. Uh, come back in, bag work, about an hour. Then they brought the weights out and everybody's benching and squatting and deadlifting, you know, like good, good all round training session. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm there, I'm wearing an orange belt, you know, and, and it's great. It's quite liberating, really. Um, I took a register at the end of every class anyway to record attendance. And they always called me Gary Sensei. So although they put an orange belt on, they still recognise that I had former experience. Um, and, yeah, it, it was great. Like I say, it was like coming home. Each, when, I, when I've said to people... <clears throat> When I, I've said to people about going to Hombu, they're sort of like, a bit sort of, oh, like it might be really scary there. But each individual session was quite manageable. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no sessions like I remember in the early days. Or um, I went to the Kyokushin Hombu in 1989, and every session was a killer. I really thought they were trying to kill me. You know, like they're really, every session, hundreds and hundreds of Kayagis, Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Japan April, May, so it was like right really in the sweaty, humid sort of season. So every, every session, I mean, like afterwards, you know, we had to mop the floor down and get the sweat up. Your gear would always be ringing wet. You know, I lost over a stone when I was in Japan. I was only there for six weeks, mm-hmm. you know. <coughs> Excuse me. Really hard work. But ancient Hombu was different. Um, very technical. Everything had to be done right. Plenty of explanations. Um, and one thing I remember from Kanchanina Mia, because I wrote notes after every session. Make smooth. Make smooth. You know, slow can be made smooth and then smooth can become fast. Whereas if you try to do everything fast, you can never really make those fine adjustments, you know. Um, Kanchanina Mia, apart from Brian Fitkin, is the man I respect the most in karate without any 
doubt at all. Um, his style is a little bit autocratic. You know, he's the man, he's the head man, and you basically do. Well, there's no democracy in Enchian. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and, and that works well. If you respect the main man, that works well. If you don't respect the main man, it's a problem. But Kancho is absolutely brilliant as an instructor, as a human being. He's a really, really good man. You know, like, I mean, I, I, he used to come over to my house when he'd come over to England for the seminars, you know, stop at my house. He'd be playing with my kids, you know, like he's, he's a, a very nice person as well as being an awesome karateka. I mean, you know as well as I do. Some of the top blokes are just arseholes, really, aren't they? You know, yeah. they've got such a big head, you know. You know, I mean, they walk around, they strut around, you know, like, I mean, I've seen some instructors, I mean, like, I'm not going to name names, it's pointless, really, but I've seen some of the instructors, I thought, all this bullshit we were taught about karate refines character, it didn't work for you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are just so arrogant, you know, but Kancho Ninamiya, you know, he's absolutely great. He's a really, really good instructor. You know, he's a nice guy. Um, his son, Mike, is taking a lot of the, I don't sure about decisions, but he seems to be taking more of a lead now in Enshin, and, you know, I'm excited for them. You know, I think there's, you know, good prospects going forward. Obviously, Mike's got his own ideas. Um, it might change a little bit, the tournament format, but it's a really, really good system. I mean, I was really, you know, of all the decisions I made in karate, joining Enshin was probably one of the better ones. You know, it was yeah, great. My, my teacher was uh, influenced highly by Ashihara Sensei. Yeah. So I remember watching uh, Kancho Ninomiya on all the yeah. tournaments and on the DVDs from, from Ashihara section. And I think yeah. the, one of the greatest moments for me um, was when we've been training at your seminar. Uh, and you came to us and said, wow, that's very familiar. You're doing a good job. Yeah. And I felt like, wow, I've got some external um, confirmation that I'm doing yeah, quite yeah. well. It was it was very disappointing that Nino Mia Sensei couldn't join us. But, you know, having you, uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name from Germany and the other ancient guys, and kind of yeah. fitting without much of a problem myself doing stuff yeah. which we do regularly. It was very, very, um, I don't know how to say it was proud for me and kind of confirmation of what I do. Yeah. 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 I mean, my, I'm not just trying to give you empty compliments here, but when, when you came, Pavel, you know, I was, I was helping Pavel get his black belt in, in Enchim. Mm-hmm. Um, Pavel was living in Gloucester, which by coincidence is where my mother lives. So I was going down to see my mother and then hopping over to Pavel's club at night. We'd meet first, have something to eat, go to his club. And I'd, I'd be teaching at his club, you know, and they were very, very good. I mean, like the Polish students I've had, they've always been gritty characters. They always train hard. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the language and the explanation is a little bit of a problem. When Pavel first came over, he didn't speak good English. So, like, it was a lot of, lot of laughter, a lot of sign language. But you know, we, we, you know, we made progress. Um, anyway, Pavel, Pavel told me about you, that you were going to come to train. Uh, yeah, I was impressed with what you did. You know, I mean, I, you know, he, he highly recommended you, and uh, yeah, what you did was very good. All right, all right, all right. Let's just come in. Um, it's so, funny yeah. because, because I am I am quite connected with uh, by coincidence with with Pavel because he live yeah. he used to live not far from where I live. 
Yeah. So when he left the UK, the club which he was running asked yeah. me to take over. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been teaching his students. I think now it's changed. He go back to Poland and yeah. he's back with them training now. So it's kind of we, we intertwined with the yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of karate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Pavel was good. You know, I was, you know it's a pleasure to help him, really. Um, that particular seminar, it was a shame because I, I don't know if you, you heard the story, but uh, Kancho came over and he brought some DVDs as gifts. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of money he is, you know, like he brought some things to, to give to people. Gifts, you know, but um, he got to the immigration desk at Heathrow and for some reason, they pulled him out, checked through his suitcase and said, what's all this? And he said, oh, it's just presents for people. Said, well, what are you here for? He said, oh, I'm coming to visit my friends while I'm here. Might do some training. So he, he mm-hmm. tried to play it down a little bit, you know. Anyway, they rang me up. And, you know, you said earlier, I tried to be honest. You know? I mean, they yeah. rang me up and they said, do you know Joe Canina Mia? So, yeah. I said, who is he? I said, he's my instructor. All right, okay. Why, why is he in England? I said, well, we're having a get together, you know, having a having a seminar. Okay. Are you paying him? And the penny dropped there, and I thought, oh dear, you know. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, we, we give him expenses, you know, we pay for his airfare to come over, but no, we don't really pay him, which was a bit of a bit of a lie, you know. Obviously, we gave him some some money for coming over. So uh, she said, all right, on that basis, then I'm going to refuse him entry because he should have a work visa. Mm. I said, oh, are you joking? I said, I said to him, look, it's a victimless crime. You know, who's who's being hurt here? It's not like he's coming over and doing dodgy deals or anything. He's going to come for a weekend, stopping at my house, going to do some training, and then he's going. You know, where's where's the crime, you know? But she was adamant, no, no, he's going back. So that, unfortunately, was a seminar he came to. That's why he wasn't there on that particular day. But yeah. uh, German instructor, Sensi Chandana, Mm. You know, he, he's a good man, so you know, hopefully, he had a good time anyway. But yeah, yeah, it was a really good time. There we go. Um, so changing the subject, leaving yeah, the karate on. behind, um, what made you to become a fireman? Well, I I left home when I was 17. I told you I had a fight with my mm. father, and I mean, I could, I could probably have stayed there, but the atmosphere was crap. So I was halfway through my A levels at the time, and I thought, you know what, I can't. I don't want to live like this anymore. So I left. I, I moved out. And my sister, by coincidence, just split up with her husband and she got a house that she was renting out. So I rented a room at her house. Um, and I literally, at the time, unemployment wasn't a problem in this country. I mean, now, now it's difficult to get jobs. At the time, our local paper had three or four pages at the back for jobs. Mm-hmm. So I literally went to a phone box with a load of 10p pieces and the first job rang up. I'm interested in the job. Oh, I'm sorry, we've already got some. Okay. The next job, engineering. And at school, I'd done engineering, uh, GCSE or GCE at the time, technical drawing. My A-levels were maths, physics. So I thought, yeah, I'm quite interested. You know, not, not really interested as a long-term thing. So I rang up. And they said, oh, you know, that particular job's got gone, but would you be interested in an apprenticeship? Well, yeah, you know, I, I just need a job, basically. So I got a job as an engineering apprentice. 
I didn't particularly like it. I mean, the factory was dirty. I mean, the smell, the noise of the machinery, I didn't like it at all. But this is probably long before you came to England, but that particular winter, we had a real problem with the power workers and the miners, and they went on strike. So to save energy, the government cut factories down to three days a week mm-hmm. to conserve energy. So because I was an apprentice, they cut my wages straight away by two, two-fifths. I was only working three days a week. And I couldn't afford to live like that. I didn't want to go home with my tail between my legs. Mm-hmm. So I had to look for something else. But because they because they cut two days a week, they'd broken the conditions. Because when you're apprentice, you have to sign to, to work for four years. Otherwise, they wouldn't put you through college and stuff. But because they'd broken the conditions, I was free to look for other work. Well, Pete Kisby, one of my first instructors, was a fireman. And I'd been to the fire station before and sort of seen them training, you know, the drills. Or actually, it looked quite good, you know. And I know it sounds sexist, but it was quite a manly sort of career, which quite appealed to me, you know. Um, one of the adverts that they had at the time was trained for a man's career. I know now that would be illegal, mm-hmm. but at the time, mm-hmm. that's just the way it came over, you know. It's like, and I just liked the idea of it, you know. I was quite excited by the idea of helping other people. Um, where I grew up, I grew up in quite a small village, and we still had quite a, a good village spirit. Where, for example, the farmers, if one bloke's tractor broke down, the next farmer would lend him a tractor. You know, they weren't they weren't in competition. They worked land together. You know, okay, that was his field, that was his field, but they still helped each other out. You know, mm-hmm. I was grown up with that sort of community idea that helping people was a good way to live. You know, so. I I went for the interview and I wasn't particularly optimistic because I was only 18. I was quite young. I was still only about, only about 10 and a half stone. Um, and I went to see, I went to the interview, turned up, put, you know, put, put my best clothes on sort of thing. But I was still a kid, you know. I mean, I wasn't very mature or anything. And the officer interviewed me. He must have seen something. He must have mm. been quite perceptive because he said to me, what do your parents think about you joining the fire service? And I just said to him, you know, well, unfortunately, I don't live at home anymore. I had to move out last year, you know. Uh, you know, I don't live at home. And straight away, he said, well, you've got a new family now. Hmm. I thought it was brilliant, the way he said it, you know. And I, I still feel quite emotional when I talk about it because it's that kindness. You know what I mean? He could have turned around and said, well, you're only 18. Come back when you're 25, when you've got a bit of life experience. But I think he recognised that I needed something. Mm-hmm. You know, I got the karate, but other to that, I was a bit adrift, you know. I think he recognised that I needed something. You know, a great man by the name of Jack Tansley, you know, one of one of my officers I've got a real respect for. Um, anyway, he said, you've got a new family now. You know, you can start on such and such a date. So I joined, you know, during December the 16th, 1974. Uh, very different world then, very different fire brigade then. The, mm-hmm. the machinery was a lot more primitive, but in some ways it was a lot better. You know, like the, the spirit, the camaraderie, I think was brilliant. You know, um, in those days, if you walked on a fire station, if you walked through a door, the absolute, I guarantee it, anywhere in the, anywhere you went, you walked through a door of a fire station, the first thing you'd hear is laughter. Mm-hmm. You'd hear people, you know, 
somewhere on the station, people will be laughing because the atmosphere on station, right, you know, was brilliant. The banter, the laughter. I mean, these days, I suppose they, they try and tone it down a little bit because, you know, they don't like, you know, bullying and you know, all this sort of stuff. I don't see it as bullying, but I mean, like, everybody got a fair share, you know, like it, mm. it went around, everybody had their turn, you know. And uh, laughter and, you know, humour is a great antidote to tragedy because we see a lot of tragedy. So you can't let things eat away at you. You've got to release them, you know. So, like, we go out something, maybe a fatal, you know, not pleasant. You know, if it's a road accident or something, you see something unpleasant. But when you come back, not straight away, but fairly soon, you know, things get back to normal and people are laughing again, you know. So, yeah, it was a great atmosphere, lovely place to work. Um, I enjoyed the job. Fantastic time, you know. I still miss it. I retired 15 years ago. I still miss it, you know. Yeah, touching on that uh, that laughter, I've seen the exactly same thing in the paramedic circles. So yeah. you deal with the grim and unpleasanties and then uh, you have to just uh, kind of release that tension and the laughter is one of the best best methods. Uh, I had a, a little bit of a adventure with the fire services. So part of our paramedic training was to spend a couple of weeks on in different services. Oh, yeah, so yeah. In, in hospitals, so I've been uh, stationed in, in uh, fire station and we yeah. had to go through some, of course, basic training. Yeah. But my perception of how firemen train and what I experienced, it was two different worlds. I think I wrote it down on one of your comments. That, you yeah. know, we came in there, first we had to climb the 30 meter ladder, which yeah. I'm not, not good with the heights anyway. Yeah. So I was pooping myself there a lot going up yeah. that, that ladder. We had to uh, upscale from the four-story buildings. Or sorry, yeah. down, downscale, upscale? Upsale, you call it. Upsale, up, upsale, yeah, upsale, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, mind-breaking as well. But the worst thing for me was, I don't know what you, how you call the suits in, in the UK, but the chemical uh, protection yeah, yeah. suit, we call it OP7 in Polish. Uh, so you've got the full full um, suits, you've got a gas mask, you've got uh, your uh, yeah. air on the back, whatever equipment they gave us, they throw us into the hot room with the smoke and the obstacle course. Yeah. And I thought I don't have a claustrophobia. Yeah, yeah. I, it all changed. I, I, it was shocking. I don't know how I scrambled through it. I managed to go through all of it, but most of it I don't remember. Yeah. Which brings me to, I think that every single person should go in school at least once through that because the amount of disrespect i see for people in services yeah. is just crazy it's just yeah. crazy i can't get it you know yeah i mean the the training um it builds up when i first joined you know we had a, a basic training school so you do like 13 weeks and there's a theory side, obviously, in the practical side. Um, at the time, this is before health and safety, so you had to run everywhere. Mm -hmm. If you're on the drill yard, you had to run. You couldn't walk on the drill yard, otherwise you'd be gone, you know. So your fitness built up. And you'd be running out hose, you know, you'd be carrying pumps, you know, setting up pumps, you know, pitching ladders. Running up. We used to run up ladders then. Now they walk up a ladder. But we mm -hmm. used to run up. We used to get somebody on our shoulders and carry them down the ladder. But 
they start you off gradually. I mean, like, I can remember the first day where they did ladders. They got a short extension ladder off, which is only like about eight foot long because it's in three extensions, triple extension. Just pitched it to a wall and showed you how to mount a ladder and how to get off, how to mount, how to get off, how to mount, how to get off. It's like karate, repetition, mm -hmm. like Keon, basics. And you know, then they extend the ladder and put it to the window, so they show you how to get off through the window, get back on, get back off, get back on, get back off. You know, but they start off low, low and we just started with short extension ladders. Then we used to have what's called a nine meter ladder. Then we had a 10.5 meter ladder. Then we had a 13.5 meter ladder. And then the big one, the, the one you mentioned, the turntable ladder was, was 30 meters. You know, mm. and for that, they pitch it to the tower and you have to climb up. You know, but you start off because you start off on the low ones and higher and higher and higher. You know, by the time you come to the 30 meter ladder, you're used to it. I'll be honest with you, I don't like heights. I spent 31 years controlling <laughs> that fear. And people didn't realise until I left. When I left, you know, I went for a weekend away with some of the blokes I work with. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm fucking glad that, excuse me, I'm glad I don't have to go up ladders anymore. What do you mean? So I absolutely hate it. <laughs> because my, my attitude was, if you don't like, it's like karate. Very, there's so many parallels between the training. In both areas, because you're both areas, you're training basics to do dangerous stuff. You know, I mean, karate is not really dangerous. I mean, okay, you might get kicked in the head or whatever, but you, you're doing your basics over and over and over again to try and reach a level of competency where you can then go to a a chaotic situation and impose order on chaos. I mean, that's the idea of the rescue services to go to something that's bad. And make it better you know you impose order on chaos um my attitude with the ladders was because i knew i didn't like it i volunteered for a high reach less rescue squad and we used to go like tower cranes and then go along the jib of a tower crane and then hang off coming down you know and i hated it i absolutely hated it felt good afterwards because i managed to control that fear but i didn't enjoy doing it at all i mean like i mean there's this notion that firemen are all brave no they're not they know how to control fear. Mm. You know, that's what we should all learn, really, at some point in our lives, whether it's through karate or, or public speaking or something. We need to learn how to control fear. Mm. And uh, I think that yeah. people have a, have a misconception of bravery. I don't think so that people are brave because they don't fear. I think that people are brave because they're overcoming that fear and doing stuff yeah. that have to be done no matter yeah. what. Yeah, I mean, there's... I think there's three factors that help you in the fire brigade. Number one is you're well-trained. Mm. You've got a good kit, right? You, you have to believe in your equipment. So if you go to a machine and take a piece of equipment off, you know it's going to work in a bad situation. You know, if you didn't trust it, you know, you know doubt creeps in. But you're well-trained. You've got to believe in your equipment. We used to test equipment over and over and over again. So we trust in our equipment. The other thing that helps you a lot is you've got a crew with you. And believe me when I tell you, when if, if you've got a high ladder to climb or something, you've got the rest of the crew there. There's no way you're going to be the one that's lacking <laughs> in courage, you know. And my, my strategy was quite simple. If I've got to climb up a high ladder 
And the worst ladder we had was an escape ladder from the aerial ladder platform, which is, a, a, you know, it's like a cherry picker. It goes on like that, you know? Yeah. And it, just in case it freezes or the hydraulic pipes break or something, you've got to have a means of getting down if you're stuck up there. So there's an escape ladder. And it's only about that wide. Yeah. And you're like 35 metres up. And you look down and it's concrete. So gravity and concrete is not a good... That's not a good combination, you know. So I used to hate climbing that. We used to have to do it as a drill on a Saturday morning. They used to take it out in the middle of the yard, extend it, fully extend it, pull the escape ladder out, up you go, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you have to come back down again. And when you do these things, you overcome the fear because the more often you do it, the more often you know you can control it. But I I never liked it. Trust me, uh, 31 years, I never, ever enjoyed it, you know. But mm -hmm. uh, luckily, I'm a fairly good actor because, like, like I say, when I, when I retired and I told people I worked with, I, didn't, I never liked tights. They, they didn't know. They didn't know because they saw me scampering up ladders like everybody else. Mm -hmm. They never knew. But inside, oh, I just, just hated it. But controlling fear is good. You know, if you can learn to control fear, you know, the world's your oyster. You can do a lot of things mm. that the timid shy away from. You know, you've, got, you've just got to learn to do it. You know, and looking back, I mean, I'm 65 now. I, I, you know, I, obviously I look back at my time in karate. I look back at my time in the firing head. I don't know if the karate helped me be a better fireman or being a fireman helped me be better at karate or if they're both. I was very lucky because I had good mentors in both places you know in the karate i had good instructors who helped help me to develop physically mentally i wouldn't say spiritually because i know i don't really do the spiritual bit but certainly you know mental strength physical fitness a lot in the fire brigade i had good mentors as well because some of the things you do if you go into for example a house fire if you watch, you see two firemen get off the appliance, they put the masks on, put the hoods on, you know, do their breathing check, grab the hose reel, in they go. What you don't realise is as they go up, the heat can reach 1,000 degrees at the ceiling. So that's, that's seriously unpleasant. Um, they now know, I mean, we didn't know at the time, but they now know that when your body's exposed to that level of heat for a period of time, it can make cellular changes in the body. A lot of firemen have, you know, various there's various ailments that they get afterwards, and you know, heat exposure is one of them. But you just do it, you know. You're not. It's not. It's not a case of standing there thinking, right, this is going to be terrible, you know, or oh, this is going to hurt. Blah, blah, blah. You just, you just get on with it. You just do it. Um, it's a funny thing, really. I think most people experience it at some time in their life. It's like mothers defending their children. You know, there's very stories about you know people have come into the home and attacked them and they've frozen while the person's attacking them but as soon as the person turns towards the child they become a tigress you know? and it's the same sort of theory that you know you can be brave on behalf of other people far easier mm -hmm. you can maybe for yourself um soldiers talk about the same thing you know when they go into battle they're fighting for the person they're not fighting for the flag or for the queen. They're fighting for the person next to them, because you can, you know, you can be brave on behalf of your comrades, you know. Mm. And when you're doing rescue work, I mean, I've done 
know, I mean, every, every fireman does it, not just me, but I've done a few things that you thought afterwards that really could have gone badly wrong, you know, like, but at the time you just get on with it. You really don't, it's not a case of sort of like, you know, squeezing your cheeks together and checking your backbone or whatever. You, you just do it. You just have to, just have to move forward. And I, I always say to people, action beats fear. Mm. Worst thing. Uh, I mean, if we had a factory fire or something like that, maybe on another station, station area, we'd go out and we'd be, we'd be told to rig in breathing apparatus as an emergency crew. So if the crews have gone in, if there's a roof collapse or something like that, we'd have to then go in and extricate those, you know, we'd have to rescue the rescuers, if you like. Mm. That's more nerve-wracking, you know, waiting for the, the roof to come in or something outside. You've got time to imagine the worst thing. Yeah. That's more nerve-wracking. But if you turn up to a house fire, person's reported, and you get off and you commit boom, straight in, you don't have time for fear to take. It's it's like going to a tournament. You know, you, you know as well as I do. You go to a tournament, you look at the draw, you're the first fight, you think brilliant. Mm. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The worst thing for me is a heavyweight. We used to go, um, we used to go down to the tournament at Crystal Palace. And like first would be the lightweights, they'd smash each other to bits. Then would be the middleweights, they'd smash each other to bits. Then be the heavyweights. Sometimes you won't fight till three o'clock in the afternoon, but you had to be there at nine o'clock for the weigh-in. You've got six hours watching people get hurt, you know, <laughs> and it's your turn, you know. Yeah. So when, when I became the chief referee, I, I changed that. I said, no, we've got three areas. We're going to have the lightweights on one area, middleweights on that area, heavyweights on that area. So everybody gets their first fight out of the way quickly. Mm. And you're probably, I don't know if you're the same as me, but I was nervous for the first fight. After that, you know, maybe we're a little bit different like this, but I wasn't really nervous for the second or, or whatever. The first fight was the worst one for me. Once I got that out of the way, then I'm moving, you know? Yeah, for me the same. Uh, yeah, first fight, the worst, it depends on outcome. Uh, if yeah. I manage to win, then I've been happy with myself, and then not really put. To be honest, not really putting much effort to winning the next one. Yeah, I've, yeah, yeah. I've been happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Now, this is the thing. You know, coming back to the fire brigade, this is the thing. I mean, you know, it, it always makes me smile when when people use the term fireman and brave in the same sentence. You know, we're, we're just human beings. We're well trained, got good equipment. And then we're in, we're in a group of people that we all we all demand a lot of each other. Mm. So it's just coincidence who's wearing the breathing apparatus or who's going up the ladder, depending on what your job is on that particular day. Uh, you know, but we, it's not like in some countries. Some people do the ladders, some people do the pumps, some people do the the breathing apparatus. But mm. in the UK, everybody does everything. So you get different jobs, different days. You know, some days I'm driving the machine. I'm working the pump. Mm -hmm. Some days I'm wearing breathing apparatus. Some days I'm doing this. Um, later in my career, I was a junior officer, so I'd go out in charge of machines. And that's a different kind of fear. Mm -hmm. Because you've got to get it right. Because if you don't get it right, the public, people that might be rescued, they might not make it. Also, for people that are on your crew, they might go into danger. Maybe you've not taken the proper precautions or you know not notice something 
if one of them gets hurt, you know, that's that's your responsibility too. So that's a different kind of fear, you know, not a physical fear, but you know, up here. So yeah, you've got to be got to be quite strong for that. Anyway, I'm really rabbiting it. <laughs> I, I think it's the, that's the worst worst no worst fear for would be worst fear for me to actually be responsible for the equipment that can fail and lead to loss of life of other people. I'm not so yeah. much caring about myself, but being responsible for other people. It's like with children, you don't care about yourself, yeah. but you care about what happens to the children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. it, it is, yeah. I mean, it's it's not, it's not a real gut-wrenching, it's not the sort of fear that paralyzes you, but... But it's there. Yeah, it is something that, you know, yeah, it takes a lot of consideration. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge. Um, most of the jobs when I was in charge of crews, most of the jobs we went to went went okay, which I'm pleased about. Um, there was a couple of people that you know we we couldn't help, but their injuries were were bad before we even got called out, you know. So we couldn't have made a real difference in that situation. Uh, but um, it was a different challenge. Quite enjoyed it, but uh, I still miss it. And like I say, I retired 15 years ago. Still miss it, but uh... what? Why you think that uh, so many people are kind of well? I have to say it disrespectful to to the services. It's not just the fire people. I'm sure the fire fire people getting the yeah. the end of it as well. But you can see on paramedics, police officers, yeah, people you know are disrespectful. But when something happens to them, they are first to cry for help and and you know. I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I watch what goes on. I just despair sometimes. I mean, I've got a friend, very good friend who's a paramedic. He's been stabbed. He was trying to save somebody that had been involved in a fight. And then somebody actually stabbed him while he was trying to save his friend. And I, I just I just can't believe that. Um, most of the time, I mean, I was in for 31 years. Most of the time, when we turned out something, people were pleased to see us. Mm -hmm. So, I've, you know... I think we've probably got the best of it out of all the emergency services. Um, the the time, the only time we really had trouble, and it wasn't really trouble, it was only low level really, but bonfire night, people build big, big bonfires on like greens, you know, in some of these states, yeah. there'll be bonfires. And then some little, some kid had set fire to it on say, for example, November the 2nd. So you have to put it out. Because if the children are messing around in it and one of them falls in and gets hurt, somebody's going to say, why didn't the fire brigade put it out? So if you get called out, you have to put it out. So then you get a load of kids throwing bricks at you and stuff like that, you know. And okay, you've got helmets on, you've got padded jackets, but you still don't want bricks thrown at you. Yeah. So uh, I, if I was in charge of the machine, we could probably put it out with a hose reel. You know, the machines carry a high pressure hose reel. Mm -hmm. Got, got it on two drums, but we've also got delivery hose. And there's small size and big size delivery hose. So I'd always say to the blokes, get a get a, a big length off. And they go, why don't we use hose? Get a big length off. Why don't we use hose? Get a big length off. Right, we'll have a big length. So we get a big length of hose out. And a big length of hose will deliver 250 gallons of water in a minute. You know. So what's that? A thousand liters a minute. That's a lot of water. So if the kids started throwing bricks, right, 
I'd just get the branch and just go up in the air like that. He couldn't point it at them because it just yeah. knocked them over. But get him up in there, they'd be absolutely soaked straight away. So if it's November, cold night, they'd be absolutely soaked. And I just think, yeah, throw what you like, really. I've got one of these. You know what I mean? <laughs> just drown them with it. So that wasn't really an issue. But, I mean, like, if you look up, like, uh, I was watching something, I think, up in Liverpool where they were firing fireworks at them and stuff like that. I mean, somebody could lose an eye. That's potentially very hazardous. So I don't know why they do that. Mm. We used to, when, we, when I first joined, every incident we went to, they turned out the police as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the certain, it, all the way through, if we turned out to a road accident, police came, probably ambulance came, so we'd all be working together. But for fires, they used to turn the police out as well. And for some reason, probably due to like cuts, they stopped turning the police out. And you go to some areas of Leicester, Leicester's quite a diverse city. Uh, how can I say this without being I don't mean to sound rude or racist in any way but some for some communities they don't act in the same way you'd normally expect mm-hmm. for example you'd have a house fire in an Asian bloke's house and there'd be like 30 people mm-hmm. walk in what are you doing? Well I'm just going to see well do you live here? No well what are you doing? Well I'm, I'm, I'm an elder in the community well you're not going to help put the fire out, so I suggest you go. Do you know what I mean? So we could end up sometimes like with a house fire, you'd have a crowd of 30 people outside all trying to get in, and you'd have to physically restrain them. And, of course, things got a bit tense sometimes, never to the point of violence, but you just think, you're not helping us here. You know, if you want us to do the job, give us room, give us space, you know. Mm. But we would have to deal with things like that, but it, it wasn't wasn't anything particularly bad really most firemen are quite big or they used to be when i was in i mean obviously now we've got smaller people and you know know, diversity means they've got to employ lots of different sizes and ages and god knows what you know try and balance things out uh i don't know why in 30 odd years nobody ever turned around to me and said thanks for saving my life but i'm disappointed because you don't have a woman a gay Mm -hmm. and all these different all these different boxes on my crew, you know, that people aren't really interested. If you're in a problem, they just want the best people they can get to turn up and help them out, you know. But mm-hmm. for some reason, the councils, the government, they all decided they wanted different, different strategy. But um, in some ways, it helps because if you've got a diverse crew, I mean, women, again, I sound like a dinosaur, sexist here, but sometimes women are very good with calming patients, if you've got somebody badly hurt in a car, you've got to cut out. Um, if you've got an Asian member of the crew, sometimes they can talk to the locals and explain what's going on and why we need more space. So there's, there's advantages to it. But when I joined in the 70s, it was mainly mainly big white blokes. So we didn't really get any hassle with anybody because like you're big anyway, you put your, your kit on, that makes you look huge. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, you've got your helmet on, you've got like carrying an axe, you know, people don't want to mess around with you. So we didn't really get that hassle. I could not have been a police officer. I've just recently been working with people who are ex-police. Mm-hmm. Some of the stories they tell me about the hassle they got, I, I yeah. could not have done that. I don't think my character would have gone for that. 
So I've got a few people who are from the police as well who quit now. One of my students is a police officer now, and it's it's just dreadful. I don't see why you know people behave like that, but they uh, hey ho, I'm not a criminal, so like you say, they want the help, don't they? Mm. They want the help. All these people rioting at the moment, you know, kill the police, kill Bill, all this lot. Mm. You know, if they went back home and found somebody broken into their house, they'd ring the police up. I've been burgled. You know, they want the help. You know, I, I just re- genuinely, I don't, I'm fairly intelligent. But genuinely, I do not understand why people. When I was a kid, we used to have a local policeman called Ken Kilbourne. Ken, the kid with the cop, everybody called him. And he had a little motorbike, little BSA motorbike. And you could hear him coming from about a mile away on this motorbike. And all the kids in the village, we wouldn't be doing anything wrong. We'd just be out playing or whatever. If you heard this motorbike, we'd all go <laughs> scatter, just disappear. And if he caught you, maybe my mum would send me to the shop or something. He'd pull up his bike next to you and say, who are you? Well, uh, Gary Chamberlain, what are you doing? And my mum's just sent me to the shop. Right, off to go home then. You know, and you never argued, mm. you know, People respect the police then. I mean, maybe that sounds a bit harsh, mm. but people respect it. But these days, they don't respect the police, do they? Mm. I, think, I think one thing is, I mean, a friend of mine told me this. He's ex-police. It used to be called the police force, mm. and now it's police service. And it's a subtle difference. You know, the police used to be there to enforce the law. Now they're there to serve the public. And I think now a lot of the public see them as a soft touch, mm-hmm. you know. And when you see the police now, you know, they're investigating people for hurty words on on the internet and stuff like that instead of going out catching bad guys, you know. Maybe that maybe that diminishes respect, I don't know. But uh, I'm just glad I joined the fire, not the police. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have done it. Uh- is your you published a couple of books so you've got the way of the knockdown which i fairly enjoyed it and you had the uh, 1000 degrees by the ceiling or something like that. Yeah. yeah which was really good i think the the 1000 is not anymore in sale or the knockdown i, is I took them, i took them both off to be honest i i took the knockdown one off um i i didn't agree with some of the things that amazon does i both had them on the amazon platform mm-hmm. um I didn't agree with Amazon. I kept getting tax demands. I'm sure you've had the same thing. Yeah. And I'd fill out all the form, right? Send it all off, fill out all the details and the rest of it. Next thing, uh, you know, we're still waiting for your tax thing. You know what I mean? And they were taking money off me. I wasn't selling the books very dear. Taking money off for tax. Mm-hmm. So, and then of course in this country, I used to fill out a tax return and I have to put down royalties anyway. So I got taxed in America, taxed mm. in the UK, and my part was so much. So what I do now, if anybody wants them, I've still got the PDFs on the computer. If anybody wants them now, if they contact me, what I ask them to do is send a donation to the firefighters charity, and you can send a text for £5 to the firefighters charity. There's a code. Mm-hmm. So if they send a text for five pounds and then send me the receipt or the acknowledgement on their phone, then I'll send them the PDF. Okay. So then I don't get yes. any money, but I'm not bothered. I wrote them to help people, not not mm. to make money. Is there so, an, is there an email you can we can reach out to you? 
Yeah, just saying one. It's GJEC. So GJEC at btinternet.com. Okay. So I'll, if anybody I'll put wants, that in the comments. Yeah, if anybody wants them, you know, like I say, what I ask people to do is make a five pound donation to the charity. And if they contact me, show me that acknowledgement because it comes upon your phone. Yeah. You know, you, you send send it, you do it by text, text message, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like witchcraft. You know, you go, <laughs> you go on the charity website, Firefighters Charity, and then you go down, it says make a donation. And it says five pound, ten pound, whatever you want to do. And it gives you a number to send a text. So then like with me, you know, I get my phone bill at the end of the month and it's just five pound added. Mm-hmm. You know how it works. So then once people send me that. I can't always say same day because sometimes I'm busy, but within a day, usually within 24 hours, if they give me email address, I'll send them the PDF. I I can say that it's highly recommended and uh, those who listen to it, just go and do it. It's supporting a great cause and the books are really good. I I have them both. Thank you very much. Um, That was brilliant. I I really enjoyed it. Uh, um, Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Okay. Hi guys, quick video on Les Bubka's Karate Journal. Really good thing to do for your training. I always take notes anyway, so to have a a proper book to use is a really good thing. I've already started filling it up, so I've got a class we did with Jamie Club there. Some notes on the lesson, what we did, what was the goal for the session, what did I learn, how I was feeling, what could I improve? So it's a re- really good tool for your training. Highly recommended. Go and get one.